The following is a sermon from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information and resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Today's scripture reading is from the book of Haggai, chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, there should be one in the pew back in front of you. You'll find today's reading on page 743. If you don't own a Bible, please take one home as a gift from Park Church. Again, we're reading from the book of Haggai, chapter 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Park Church. Welcome, uh, all of you. Glad you're here. I want to say welcome uh, to those who are new to Park Church as well. Thanks for coming to join us. Um, a couple of announcements before we get into uh, this passage. Um, have you made it to the book of Haggai yet? You can, um, 
take you a few more minutes. There's a table of contents in your Bible if you need it. It's a tricky one, just like one spread. Um, It's right there. I want to begin this time in Haggai with a question. What does home mean to you? What does home mean to you? And just for fun, I want to invite, you know, the extroverts or the courageous people to shout, it, shout out something, uh, just, just for fun. What does home mean to you? Place. Safe place. What else? Known. known. Feeling known. What else? What does home mean to you? Accepted and loved. Somebody else said something. Don't be shy. I couldn't hear, but so good. That was... <laughs> That was so good. Comfort. 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 Thank you, Peter and Jesse. <laughs> uh, comfort. Yeah, what else, what else does home mean to you? What? Being back. Being back. Back home. Making your, making your way back home. Some people, home is your home. For some people, home is still in your mind, like the place you grew up, back with your family. Like, are you going home for the holidays? You're like, to my home or like to my parents' home, right? It's different for different people. Um, Habitat for Humanity put out this question. They do a lot of helping establish homes for people. And they asked this and kind of put a selection of things on their website. What does home mean to you? One person said only three words, safety, security, and stability. That was a lady named Kathy said safety. I think we have these as slides. Safety, security, and stability. Another person, what does home mean to you? She said, home is a place blessed where you and your family can be secure, have all you need, and share your sadness and happiness, where you can help each other as a family. It does not matter how big or small. I live in a small room with my two sons, and we share our thoughts. Another person, what does home mean to you? I think that home is simply wherever you're surrounded by people who love you. Another person, what does home mean for you? Home is a safe haven and a comfort zone, a place to live with our families and pets and enjoy with friends, a place to build memories as well as a way to build future wealth, a place where we can be truly, truly just be ourselves. And whether our houses are big, small, fancy, or modest, they are our shelters and our sanctuaries. I don't know what home is for you. I, I, I grew up, uh, again, my, my parents divorced when I was young, and so like home was kind of this like back and forth experience for me, and, and we moved, and then after I went to college, my parents moved. As a little kid, like the main, one of the main memories I have of my home is like um, a hole in my door uh, where I stole something from my sister's room. She chased me into my room. I pinned my door shut. She kicked a hole in my door, and then we covered it with a Garfield poster until we, until we moved. Uh, my parents didn't even know about it until we're like, oh, better get that Garfield poster on the way out. Oh, how about that hole in the door? That was, that was it. And then um, later in life, you know, like, uh, again, my parents, it's a weird experience if you've had this experience after you leave the house, uh, if your parents move after you leave the house, like going back to their new house is just like never the same. It's like I have no like memories here, no whatever. And so that happened pretty early on for me in college for my dad shortly after college with my mom. And so kind of my experience of home, even like going to visit my family, it never felt like going home. It was like my parents' new house. Um, and, and as I think about home now, our family is like, how do we cultivate a home? When I think about it now, like the traditions we're trying to cultivate, the, the sense of safety and warmth and love and acceptance where you can be yourself and let down your guard and just be present in a space. Um, it's what we're looking for. And I know, I know everybody's experience of home is different. Some of you have really wonderful experience of home when you think about it, whether it's in your upbringing or your life now. Some of you have really chaotic and 
a challenging experience of home, maybe from your past or even in your present now, either, either, in, either, in any case. I would say at its best, at its best, home is a place marked by safety, provision, comfort, and love. At its best. It's a place marked by safety. You can let down your guard. It's a safe place. You're safe from the elements. You're safe from uh, threats. You're safe from whether it's the heat or the cold. At its best, home is a place of safety where you can let down your guard. Home is a place of provision where you can go home. If you're hungry, you can go and get food and you can have drink and you can rest. It's a place of provision. At its best, home is a place of comfort. Not necessarily all the comforts that you always long for, but a place where you can be yourself. You can be comfortable. You feel at home. It feels familiar. It feels like a place. Have you ever said, they made me feel so at home, right? Or this place feels like so homey, right? The idea is I feel, I feel able to kind of let down my guard and be myself in this space. And it's a space of love where you can be your true self and experience love. It is absolutely true that for many people, that's not their experience. But there's something in the human person that is aching for home. And that's what we're talking about today. This third Sunday of Advent is this idea that humanity is aching for home. It's in you. It's in your bones. It's in your DNA. It's in your God-given design to have this sense of longing to be in a space where there's safety, where there's provision, where there's comfort, where there's love. You have like a, a disposition in you that is pointed at trying to cultivate that kind of experience. You, you have a longing for it that's wired within you, longing to feel safe, Longing to feel some sense of provision, longing to feel some sense of comfort, longing to feel some sense of love. That is an aching that's inside of you, that's an aching for home. Throughout this Advent series, we're looking at this concept of aching. It's the experience of the the pain that humans feel as they have this sense of longing or anticipation or hunger for something to be different. The first week we looked at the idea of aching for justice. You have this sense that the world ought to be a place of justice, a place where the righteousness of God is seen and experienced, where people are cared for and loved and valued and provided for, where wrongs are put right and rights are celebrated. You long for justice. There's an aching for justice. Last week, Joel looked at this idea of aching for freedom. The things that hold us down and that we feel stuck and unable to free ourselves and liberate ourselves and find real deliverance and real salvation. We long and ache for freedom. And today, this third Sunday of Advent, we're looking at this idea of aching for home. Aching for home. And the first thing I want us to kind of slow down and pay attention to is that the Bible tells a story of people aching for their true home. This is the story of the Bible. Really from start to finish, it's a story of people aching for their true home. I want us to look at Haggai. Again, you can find your way back there. Um, It might take you a few minutes. I get it. Uh, I'll tell you, Haggai... Uh, is one of my favorite books of the Bible, and, uh, and it's my, one of my favorite books of the Bible for a few reasons. Number one, uh, it's one of the first books of the Bible I ever read. And it's not because it was particularly interesting to me. It's not because um, I understood what it meant. It's because when I got a Bible when I was like 13 years old, this little NIV given to me by this Methodist church, um, I'm like, I should read the Bible. And I started in Genesis. I'm like, this is way too long. And, um, and I looked at the table of contents to find the books that I could feel like, I got through that book. I did that. And I started checking off uh, in my table of contents in this little Bible, the books of the Bible I had read through. And so I read like Haggai, Philemon, 
second, third John, these ones that are all like one or two pages long. And when you looked at the table of contents, you're like, dang, that guy's reading the Bible. You know, like, uh, it's like, it took me like no time at all. But Haggai was one of the first couple books I read for that reason. Uh, I still have that Bible with all my little check marks and, you know, on this table of contents. I never made it to the other ones in that Bible. I was like, I got through the ones that lasted like two pages. And I'm like, that's, that's good for me for now. Um, I love the book of Haggai also. I think the book of Haggai is a, has a powerful, powerful message um, for us today. And I'll come back to that slide in a minute. Um, but a powerful message for us uh, today. Uh, this, this book um, is a book in these minor prophets. Throughout Advent, we're looking at the minor prophets. Um, in the Hebrew tradition, they'll call the, the minor prophets the book of the 12. And because it was really like one scroll that had all the 12 minor prophets in them. And they're not minor in the terms of like not significant, not as big of a deal. They're just like didn't write as much as people like Ezekiel and Isaiah and others. And so the minor prophets are these shorter books of the Bible um, that in the Hebrew tradition are put in one scroll. They kind of lapse a long period of time from before Israel's exile into Israel's exile. And then after the exile, we'll talk about that more in a minute. And so the book of Haggai exists after the exile. So I want you to look at Haggai chapter 1, verse 1, and uh, we're going to pay attention to this, get a little bit of the backdrop of the story, and then come back into to chapter 1. It says this, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. We're going to pause there. Um, he's giving kind of a time, a very specific time, time stamp for this book. This whole kind of prophecy and Haggai's whole ministry that we're aware of took place over the course of about 15 weeks in 520 BC. We'll talk about that more. He had a few different words that the Lord gave him over the course of August, September, October, and December of 520 BC. That's like his ministry. And that's what we know of Haggai. We don't know a lot about him. We don't know a lot of his story. But we know he's in 520 BC because this date, we'll talk more about that. But who is Haggai? Who is Haggai? We're going to put this back on the screen, this LinkedIn profile. Uh, Neil started this. Joel continued it. And I was obligated to do it also. Um, so Haggai, uh, lover of Yahweh, prophet, motivational speaker, probably an Enneagram 8. That's my guess. Um, he was a prophet to Judah, which is the southern kingdom. If you're not familiar with uh, kind of Bible terminology around the kingdoms, there's a time after David, who's kind of the kind of quintessential king of Israel. His son Solomon came after him. Solomon's kids split up the kingdom. One tribe was like the northern tribes, which is 10, you know, 10 or so tribes up north. There are two tribes that were in the south. And we call those tribes Judah. We call the northern tribes Israel, which is kind of funky. It's all Israel, but when we break it up into tribes, it's Judah's in the south. Israel's in the north. Judah's the one that's carrying on the line of David the king. Uh, Israel's kind of its other thing. So later, if you're learning about biblical history, you know, the tribes in the north, the tribes of Israel, uh, kind of were conquered by Assyria a couple hundred years before, 100 years or so before Judah was conquered by Babylon. What he talks about, it talks about the temple, housing, money, complacency, idolatry, work, and priorities. Um, it, it's an interesting book because he's really a challenger. All, all the prophets are pretty potent challengers. Haggai's going to push hard on some stuff. The, the word the Lord gives them is a really challenging word. Uh, what's beautiful about the book of Haggai, one of the other reasons I love it, is it's one of the books of the Bible where the people are like, sounds good, let's go. And you're like, what? They did a good thing. Uh, they responded to the prophecy and repented and turned to the Lord and got about what Haggai had taught them about. 
This is happening in 520 BC. What we need to do is kind of back up a little bit and, and kind of bring ourselves into the story. And so look with me at verse 2. Kind of hit verse uh, 2 and 3, and then we'll back up and talk a little more about this idea of the temple. Here's Haggai's word that the Lord gave him for the people of Judah. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say, The time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? What's going on? Um, the, the people of Israel are in the land of Israel. They're now in Jerusalem, and they're in a land where the temple is decimated. It's in total ruins. And as they've come back into this experience, they're kind of busying themselves, working on building their own houses, while the temple of God is in the middle of the community in ruins. And that's a big deal to the Lord. We need to talk about why. All right, so here's where I want to say the Bible tells this whole story. In the very beginning of the story, when the Lord creates the heavens and the earth and brings order and abundance to the earth, he's pictured as this, this king, this loving, benevolent king who in his generosity and in his love speaks kingly decrees and creation obeys and he creates a kingdom. And the way that it's portrayed in Genesis 1 and in Genesis 2, this creation of this creation kingdom is like, it's like a temple. In the Bible, a temple is a place where God dwells among a people. That's what a temple is. It's a place where the dwelling place of God is with a people. And the Garden of Eden in Genesis 1 and 2 is pictured as this temple, this dwelling place where God lives with his people. Not in a building, but in creation. This is the fundamental design of God. It's the fundamental intention of God to dwell in this earth with his people, where we listen to his leadership and his love and his wisdom. We walk with him. We trust him. We abide in his love. We find things like safety. We find things like provision. Uh, we find things like comfort and love in the presence of God. We find our home with him. He's dwelling among us. He's made this place for us to be. And when we're with him, we find all these things that human beings long for. So God creates this creation, and it's like this temple, this dwelling place of God, this home where God has made his home. And beginning in the end of Genesis 1, after he creates it all, it talks about this seventh day where God like settles down and rests in his home with his people. In Genesis 2, you find God kind of in this space with Adam and Eve, in this creation space where he's dwelling among his people. He's at home with them. They're at home with him. This is the beginning, us being at home with our maker and finding with him this, this experience of safety, this experience of provision, this experience of comfort, and this experience of love that every human being loves because it's what you're made for. Shortly into this story, this intruder comes in this garden, this spiritual enemy, this serpent. And in this serpent, the, the man and the woman are deceived and they turn away from their God and start to, start to try building the life on their own terms, right? We're going to build our home on our own terms apart from the presence and the love and the authority of our maker. And because of that, Adam and Eve are separated from the presence of God. They're exiled from Eden and east of Eden. They're still having this longing to, to make a home for themselves, but they're now doing it apart from the God who truly is our home, is our true place of rest and safety and provision and comfort and love. And so for the rest of the story of humanity, including today, humans are trying to still find these things, find and make a home for ourselves, but we are mostly, many of us in many ways, trying to do that apart from the presence of our maker. 
still standing in opposition to him, trying to use our own resources, our own life to build our houses, to build our cities, to build security, to to make and provide for ourselves, to find safety, to experience comfort, to kind of acquire love for ourselves apart from our maker. And the Bible story is about God's mission to restore us to our true home with him. When you get to Genesis or Revelation 21 and 22, it's God bringing heaven and earth back together as it was always intended to be. And it's talking about him dwelling among us. We are with him and he is with us. We are his people. He is our God. It's this idea of God has made his home among us again. That's the whole story. The Bible tells this story. And so as the Bible begins to unfold this mission, God is redeeming a people to begin to use this people, the people of Israel, to extend his home to all nations, to bring all nations to make their home with him and to restore all of creation. So in the person of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, eventually God has made these promises. They find themselves and their kind of people in slavery in Egypt. And in slavery in Egypt, God redeems them through the blood of a lamb. He brings them through the waters. And the first thing they do in the wilderness as they're being led by a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire is God instructs them on what it means to be his people in the wilderness and what it means to build a tabernacle. Like this place where God's house is going to be with them and at the center. And we worked through Exodus, I don't know, five years ago or something like that. We worked through the book of Exodus. We, we learned that the temple was like the priority. It was at the center. Every time the people would navigate through the wilderness, they'd, they'd establish this tabernacle, this like um, essentially this kind of pop-up t- temple, like a tent where the dwelling place of God would reside there, and they would order their whole society around the tabernacle, around the presence of God. It was the most important thing. First thing you do when you set up a new camp is build the tabernacle, set it up, erect the tent, set up all the things, and order your whole society around the presence of God. When they eventually made their way into uh, Judah, into Jerusalem, David eventually was committed, I'm going to build the Lord a house. Solomon builds the temple, the first temple, and the people of Israel had this kind of flourishing kingdom. Before long, they did the same thing that Adam and Eve did. They forgot about the presence of God and started trying to build security and provision and life on their own terms. So the same thing that happened to Adam and Eve happened to the people of Israel. Judgment came. Judgment came in 587 to the tribe of Judah. They're exiled from the promised land. And in 587, Babylon destroyed their temple, destroyed their temple. Their thought was, if we've got the temple and if we kind of like have that, then we're going to be fine. But they had so neglected the presence of God in their own hearts that God withdrew from the temple and they lost that sense of protection, safety, provision. Babylon destroyed them. They were exiled to Babylon. The prophets would start prophesying, the day's coming when you'll get uh, permission and you'll be returned to your land and I will again restore Israel. Haggai is written about 18 years after the people have returned to Jerusalem. So they come back to Jerusalem in roughly 538 BC. And they start building the temple, but there's some like hiccups along the way. And they say, nah. And they neglect the temple and they spend the next 18 years living. And what Haggai says is not just living, like what you're really kind of become consumed with is like improving your lifestyle. In fact, the word it says here, right here, and look at verse 3. Is it time for you yourselves, or verse 4, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? The idea of the paneling, that's a word that was used for different adornments in the temple. Saying, hey, the, the stuff that you used to use to like make the temple a beautiful space, you've neglected that, and you're using all those resources to make your little kingdom a beautiful space. In the first temple, in Solomon's temple, people would walk into Israel and they'd be like, wow, the temple is magnificent. It was this radiant, glorious temple. 
And now if you walked into Jerusalem, there's no temple. You'd be like, wow, your house is dope. You know, like, well, I love what you've done to the place. You know, um, that house project, that house project. In other words, you'd walk in and you wouldn't even realize that these people had a God that they worshipped. It was not evident in their life. It's not evident in their life. So the first thing I wanted to see from Haggai is that trying to make a home without the presence of God won't ultimately satisfy. That's what they were doing. They made their way back into Jerusalem, and they're there. They thought, yeah, let's build a temple. Yeah, that's a little tricky. Nah, let's instead busy ourselves improving, upgrading, advancing our own lifestyle and not giving attention to the priority of the presence of God. We do this all the time. This kicked me in the butt last night. I'm familiar with Haggai, and I'm like, all right, know what we're doing, know where we're going. The Lord's like, nope, hold on. You are not attending to my presence. This is me last night. That there's so much in my life right now that I'm like, okay, my car broke down. I got to figure out this car situation and, and this happened over here and I got to figure this out. I want to go skiing with the kids and got to figure this out. And I want to I do this thing. We got the holidays coming up. Got to figure this out. Got a sermon to write. Got to figure that out. Got got this situation. And like, I'm like, in my own heart, like have been in this kind of anxious space for, for a little while. And it just felt like the Lord last night, this is for you. You're, you're busy kind of like doing life. And you're not paying attention to the priority of my presence. No wonder you feel anxiety and stress. No wonder you feel some like malaise settling over you. No wonder things aren't feeling like satisfying. No wonder this kind of like pressure is, is pushing on you. No wonder you're feeling like a desire to kind of like numb out at the end of the day. This is where I'm at right now. And the Lord's last night like this is for you but I wonder if it might also be for you. I imagine it might be. Here's what he says. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while my house lies in ruins, this house? Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. I love that. He's like, how's that working out for you? Like, how's it working out for you to busy your life doing your thing without giving attention and prioritizing my presence? He says this, you've sown much and harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. He's like, great. You're like sowing and harvesting and working, but it's not satisfying. You're getting your clothes on, but you're still not satisfied. You're, you're putting money and making all this money, and you're putting it in there, and it just feels like it's never enough. It's never enough. It's never enough. It's never enough. You're not satisfied. Why? Why? Well, let's look at what he says. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And what you brought, well, and when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts? Because my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld their dew, and the earth has withheld its produce, and I have called for a drought on the land and on the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. He's saying, your inability to find real sense, a true sense of safety, of security, of provision, of comfort of love is because you're doing it without my presence. And this has always been the problem. Since Genesis 3, 
It was the problem in Genesis 3. It was the problem before Babylon came is that we said, I don't need God to build a meaningful, flourishing life. I can do it on my own. I can do it with my job. I can do it with my friends. I can do it with recreation. I can do it with hobbies. I can do it with clothes. I can do it with finances. I can do it with substances. I can do it with food. I can do it with drink. I can get enough stuff and busy myself with all this stuff and finally feel like life is good. And he's like, no, you, you never feel that way. Because that feeling comes from abiding in the presence of God. It comes from making your home with God and letting him make his home with you. And so just give you kind of a moment to reflect. Like where is the presence of God in your priorities? What does attending to the presence of God in your own life look like? If you looked at your day, if you looked at the the people of Israel in Jerusalem, this temple that was supposed to exist right in the middle of their community. It's not there. If you looked at their life, you don't see the presence of God as a priority in their life. If you looked at your life, where is the, pri- where is the presence of God? Where, where, where is it on your priority list? If you just like looked at your life on an honest level, and I'm not saying this with judgment. I'm saying this as like, like convicted. Again, last night, like sharp conviction feeling. Where is practicing the presence of God as a priority in your life? You won't have this feeling of home that you long for if you continue to neglect the presence of God as a, as a central priority around which you order your life. That could look like waking up in the morning and spending time with God as the thing of first importance to you. It could look like prayer rhythms in your life. It could look like repentance because there's stuff where you've been running away from God and pushing away from him and you're still trying to do it on your own and you know it's wrong and you feel conviction from the spirit but you're still committed to it. It might look like repenting of certain things. It might look like asking for forgiveness. It might look like establishing new rhythms in your daily life and in your weekends and on your Sabbath to be able to slow down and give priority, pres- uh, give priority attention to the presence of God in your life. Because trying to make a home without the presence of God won't ultimately satisfy. In in Haggai chapter 2, the last part of chapter 1, they begin to build a house. They respond. And God says, I'm with you. I'm here. As you're doing it, I'm here. I'm helping you do it. And they build a house and they build a temple. And in chapter 2, you can read about it. It's kind of wild. The people that are like older in the community that have been there for the first temple, you know, 70-something years before, uh, were just bummed. Like, this temple compared to our last one is awful and uh, that doesn't feel right and they begin to wonder maybe there's more maybe this longing for the presence of God maybe this temple wasn't the ultimate goal and it wasn't and in chapter two it begins to prophesy that somebody's going to come from this line of David from this line of Zerubbabel and is going to come and he's going to make his home with you and that's what we find in Christmas that Jesus was born And John 1 says he came and he tabernacled among us. He made his home among us. That the God of the universe, the creator of the heavens and the earth, came and he made his home with us right here. He walked and talked and led and he provided food for people when they were hungry and love for people when they were hurting and protection and safety for people and healing for people. He provided this experience of home. When people saw Jesus and his disposition towards others, they were drawn to him. It's like they had found their true home. That's who he had come to be. He came to make the, the dwelling place of God with us. And a wild thing happened in his ministry. He said, the day's coming when I'm going to depart from you, and it's good that I go away, because when I go away, I'm going to send the helper, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will not just make his home among you, he will make his home in you. That the very Spirit of the living God will reside in you. 
And that's what happened when Jesus continued his ministry, loving and serving. He was ultimately betrayed, mocked, abandoned. Even the people that he had loved and had made a home for them when his presence ran away from him. And as he was crucified, he took upon himself our sin, our rebellion, our attempts to build a life on our own terms, apart from the love of God, apart from the presence of Christ, my own wandering, fickle, frail, inconsistent heart that constantly puts priorities uh, of my own kind of pursuits of pleasure and comfort and life and security on my own terms with my own power, I often chase that instead of pursuing Jesus and putting him at the center. Even that, that inconsistency, that fickle, wandering heart in me, when Jesus died on the cross, he was dying to bring atonement and forgiveness and grace for all of our sins for those who would turn to him and trust him. So we don't have to feel like, man, I've been struggling to do that. I bet he's mad at me. You can always go home to Jesus. It's like the home you can always come to, that you can come when you're hurting, when you're struggling, you make your way home and you are loved. You're seen, you are known, you're loved because the blood of Jesus covers all all of your sin, and we find that. And as Jesus died on the cross and rose again the third day, he had said this, I'm going to prepare a home for you. I'm gonna prepare a place for you, and that's what he's doing. He's preparing for us, and he's building all of life towards this final moment in history where he will come again, he'll make all things new, and the dwelling place of God will be with us, and we will be with him, it will be beautiful. And in the meantime, he's given us this deposit, this down payment on, on his promise the presence of the Holy Spirit within us. And so Jesus can say things like this, make your home in my love. Make your home in my love. The way he says it in John 15, abide in my love. Abide in me. Abide in my word. He's saying, make your home with me. Like throughout your days, even when I'm gone, I've given you the Holy Spirit. Make your home with me. Make your home in my love. Make your home in my word. Make your home in me. He is the one who can give us right now this taste, this taste of where the whole world is headed, this taste of this experience of safety, an experience of comfort, an experience of provision, an experience of love, even now while we wait for him to make all things new. We still ache. We still ache, but through the Spirit, we get to taste that now. And through the Spirit, we get to offer that to other people now. As we offer to others the hospitality of our God, it says it in Romans 12, verse 5, therefore welcome one another just as God in Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Just like God opened up his doors to you and said, come on in, make your home with me. He says, we're supposed to be that kind of a people to others around us. We're supposed to be that kind of a people to others around us. Jesus came to this world to reconcile us to our true home. And while we wait for Jesus to come again, our mission is to make our home in the love of Jesus and to extend his love to others. This is who we are called to be. This is who we are invited to be. This is what the Spirit of God has given for us right now. That we would today, and I want to just like give this to you, like just some clear things to think about. Today, you have the ability today to make your home in God. To find in him safety. Maybe not physical safety, but a sense of even death has lost its sting. Even the greatest enemy to our lives, death itself, won't be victorious because of the blood of Christ, because of his resurrection on the third day. I'm confident that my home is in him and death cannot separate me from that love. He can provide for us his experience of provision. He gives to us our daily bread and meets us with his love and his grace and his sufficiency even in trials. 
He can give us comfort. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures, comfort forevermore. It's in his presence that you find true comfort, the ability to be your true self and to let down your guard with him. And he offers you a kind of love that is so stable and so foundational and so real. So why would we not make that the priority of our life? To prioritize the presence of God in our everyday life. How can we do that? What, what steps could you take this week to put the presence of Jesus, time with him, communion with him, enjoyment with him, conversation with him, time in his word, time listening, time praying, to put that at the center of our daily lives? I, I have some real like steps of repentance I need to take this week. Just I can see some clear patterns in my life where I push the, the centrality of God's presence out of the center. I have to take some real steps this week. What steps might you need to take? Second, what does it look like to be a people who extend that to others? Who could you show that sort of love to this week? What person in your small group? What person in your neighborhood? What person at your school? Classmates, teachers, students? What about the Venezuelan migrants and other people, houseless people in our city? What opportunities do we have to reflect that sort of hospitality, that we be the kind of people that make people feel at home by the way we see them? Love them, care about them, honor them. This is who God's called us to be as we wait for Jesus to come again. May his spirit help us to do it with hope and with joy. Let's pray. Jesus, we need you this morning. And we are so grateful that though we have turned from you in so many ways, that you turned towards us with compassion, that you moved towards us. You took on flesh as a baby to dwell among us, to make your home with us. You atoned for our sins to cleanse us so that we could make our home with you. You've given us your Holy Spirit to abide within us, and you've called us to abide in you, and you've promised that you're coming again to redeem the whole creation, to make all things new and to make your home fully with us on this earth, heaven and earth as one. Would you help us increasingly to believe these things? And would you help us practically in our daily life to live in light of them? Where we need to repent of our neglect, of our misplaced priorities, would you help us? Remind us of your atoning love. Remind us that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Where you might call us to extend your love, and to be the kind of people that reflect your presence to others in our community, in our church, in our neighborhoods, in our city? Would you give us wisdom and courage to step into those spaces? And would you help us as we wait for you, as we stand in the ache, as we feel the pain and the difficulty of life under the sun, would you help us to wait with patience? We pray, Jesus, come quickly. Amen. Hey, thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all people. More information and more resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Take care.